Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly live stream and podcast. Hi, I'm Asa Christiana. I'm the editor of Fine Woodworking Magazine, and alongside me is Mike Pekovich. He's the here. art director. Um, before we get started, I wanted to talk about a couple funny things that we realize as we're still working out the kinks uh, with this podcast live stream. Um, like uh, last week, we couldn't quite hear me, sounded like I was talking in some sort of an echo chamber, and we had the air handling systems on, uh, which was interesting. So we learned that we have to go up on the roof. So now before every podcast, we go up on the roof and we hit a button and it, now we have nice peace and quiet so people can hear the audio. Um, we're, as Ed will tell you later on, we're available on iTunes now, so you can go there and download the podcast and listen to it. It's portable. Take it with you. Take it out in the shop. I listen to podcasts in the shop. Um, I listen to a lot of spoken word. I, I just like it. Um, a lot of woodworking is sort of, uh, can be a little bit tedious when you're milling stock or whatever. Some people like to groove out the tunes. You're more of a tunes guy, right? Yeah. So did you listen to our podcast in your shop? I did. It's a little hard to listen to yourself, yeah. you know. I get sick of hearing myself anyway, but I'm hoping it'll be more enjoyable for the audience than it is for me. Cool. Um, the other funny thing that happened last time was that Ed was playing sound effects. So while I was listening to it back, it sounded like someone was trying to sabotage the podcast. I was like, what's happening? And I realized that Ed was playing sound effects that we couldn't hear. Boring. <laughs> exactly. So in the middle of us talking, you hear boring and buzzers and stuff. But we plow on <laughs> as if nothing else, you know, as, as if no one has said anything. Yes. And it wasn't actually an outside uh, malicious person sabotaging us. It was actually Ed, who's supposed to be on our own team, who was sabotaging <laughs> us, which was uh, sad to find out. Uh, and then the last thing, that little bit of business from last week, was that we may have misunderstood one of the questions. So, Mike, that was more one that was aimed at you, I think. Yes. Uh, Chris wrote in about... Um, uh, surfacing quarter sawn white oak and how gnarly that can be. And his suggestion was, well, why can't I use just my low angle plane? And so my assumption was he was planing at a low angle, which is not good. But what Chris meant, and this is an awesome point, I'm really glad we get to visit it again, is that a low angle plane is, is called that. Here's one here, because the blade itself is, is bedded at a very low angle at 12 degrees. However, the bevel is facing up instead of down, like on a regular hand plane. And what that means is that even though the blade is bedded at a low angle, by sharpening the blade with a very steep angle, you can actually get a very steep, effective cutting angle, which could actually work really well and does work really well for gnarly wood. So I'm glad Chris brought that up. It's a great point. And that's a really cool thing about low angle planes is that you can have multiple blades. What Mike's saying is if you flip it over and you picture, uh, you picture this blade um, in the normal position in a standard bench plane, changing the bevel angle doesn't do anything to change your effective planing angle. Yeah, exactly. But, but because the bevel's up, you could actually have multiple blades um, ground at different bevels, uh, different bevel angles for sort of a higher angle for gnarly woods or a lower angle for end grain, and you could just switch out the blades and do, a, do an amazing amount. Pretty much this could be the one bench plane you own, and it could do a whole bunch of things for you. Right, right. All right, so I guess that jumps us into the uh, first question. Ed, what do you got? Okay, Mike wrote in, uh, how do I keep panel 
uh, frame and panel cabinet doors square, and how do you square them if they're not during glue-up? Well, I've done some, um, I've done a number of frame and panel doors. Everyone has to do them as a woodworker, but Mike, you've done like a house full of these things, so you must have some tricks. Yeah, I mean, uh, typically a, a door, if you have mortise and tenon joinery, that's sort of self-squaring. If you're using cope and stick joinery, where the rails can sort of slide along the styles. Cope and stick, meaning the little matched router bits, where you don't get a full tenon going into a full mortise. You just get a little bit of a stub tenon going in there. Exactly, in a groove, and it can slide along that shaped groove. Right. That can be trickier. A lot of times, I'll clamp the end pieces to the panel itself and use the, the panel to act as a squaring thing. But the bottom line is, you know, as long as you, you don't have gaps showing in your joints, you don't have to be dead square. I always make my doors a little bit oversized because there's no guarantee my case is square to begin with. Good point. So I'll make my door a little oversized, and I'm basically fitting the door to the case, whether the case is square or not. Whether the door is square or not to begin with doesn't matter as long as they fit in the end. That's a really, really good point. And then you have a process of fitting a door. You would get the hinge side locked in first, and then the top and bottom, and then the latch side last. Is exactly. that how you would go yep. about it? Yep. And then some basic tips on just keeping your glue up square. We have a great article going, and I think it's this next issue that's yeah, coming out. Yeah, Fundamentals with Steve Latta. Yeah. yeah, it's the Fundamentals. And there's some just basic tips that um, getting keeping things square is probably the main battle. I know woodworking's a constant lesson in humiliation and uh, humility, but... Uh, Keeping square is probably the main battle, and it starts with the lumber you choose and how you mill it, and and uh, and you know the whether it's dry enough and whether it's going to move on you, and then having all your table saw and all your machines square, and then cutting joints at true ninety, and and you know having the rail the rail at the top and bottom be the exact same length because if those aren't the same length, then it's never going to be square. Exactly. It's like you kind of have to get almost every single thing right throughout a project in order to end up at square at the yes. end. Yeah, I mean, building a piece of furniture, in essence, it's an accumulation of errors. Yeah. So the more you exactly. can limit those at every stage, the better you're going to be. That's a great sales pitch for woodworking. It sounds it horrible. Like, yeah. welcome to the accumulation of errors. You know, since you're on this whole thing about frame and panel doors, can you address what we were, what Mike and I were talking about earlier today when I misread that question? And... I almost thought the guy was talking about that, the phenomenon of when you glue one up and it doesn't end up quite flat. Because oh. maybe when you've clamped it together, you know, one corner is kicked out a little bit and the other corner is kicked down, which happen has yeah, happened to me before. Is you've got a hair bit of a twist, and if you clamp it up like that and leave it to dry, you're, you're screwed. Yeah. What? Yeah. Uh, you know, it can uh, be caused, again, if your stock is just slightly warped or twisted. Right. To the eye, it may look fairly straight by the time you glue it up. Those, that slight bow turns into a pretty nasty twist. And once you have a twisted door, it's almost impossible to flatten. You're kind of up a certain creek without yeah. a paddle. Um, the, I would say, you know, just I was going to mention earlier, I'll throw it in now, about milling. I kind of like to do rough milling and get stuff really close, like within an eighth of an inch in all directions. But then set it aside for a while, let it acclimate to my shop. And whenever I have time, I almost always do that. And then go back, let it move, let it go where it wants to go um, at that size. It's funny, when lumber changes size drastically, all of a sudden it'll twist because the tensions relieve themselves. It's a whole big thing we right. won't get into. But, um, and then do a final milling stage after it sat for a couple weeks in my shop. I, and I tend to get really good stability after yep. that. 
Yeah, I mean, the problem, rails and styles, they tend to be skinny parts. Right. And there's a natural tendency to say, well, why am I milling all these skinny parts? I'm getting one wide board nice and flat. I'm going to rip them into all these strips for my door parts. And they start to spaghetti and banana out. You start to glue them a door and you have a lot of problems. So milling to get flat and square is absolutely key. Let's move on before Ed plays another sound effect. <laughs> Moving on, uh, this one comes from Phil Van Kersteren. He's a licensed cabinet maker, and he's a high school woodworking teacher in Ontario. And Good for he, you, uh, by the way. You're doing the Lord's work. He had a question about the Fine Woodworking Live event this summer. He wants to know um, if we have any plans to have it in different venues around the country, possibly even in Canada going forward. Well, it's a great chance to plug Fine Woodworking Live. We're really excited about that. And that's going on August 2 through 5 in New Paltz, New York. Um, you can go to fwwlive.com or findwoodworkinglive.com on our site and find out all the details, all the amazing presenters we're going to have, the schedule, everything about New Paltz and how nice it is to bring a spouse, or whatever, housing, we're going to provide some food, etc. But th to answer the guy's question um, and get past my uh, shameless plug, uh, the, this is our very first time ever doing an event of our own, of our very own. We've been part of the Colonial Williamsburg one before. We've, mm -hmm. we've co-sponsored various other events like the Furniture Society and things like that. But this is really all ours, all planned by us, and is a real representation of hopefully what people love about the magazine. And since we're new at it, um, we don't really know the answer to that. Um, it may, we may love New Paltz as a spot and stay there. We may keep coming back to New Paltz because it's close to everybody on the eastern seaboard. And, um, and the, so far, the venue looks great, like really dynamite. But, you know, we may add a second show every year, which could maybe roam around. Or we'll just say, New Paltz is great. Let's start moving it around. We'll come up to, where's this guy from, Ontario? He's from Ontario, yes. Yeah, maybe we'll come to Ontario next or... I mean, Hawaii. I scouted a, or Hawaii, <laughs> yeah, it would be great. We could only go to tropical locale yes. for the, for the uh, editor's benefit. But um, I scouted a ton of locations, and there were a lot of runners-up. So um, it's, it's highly possible that we'll add a second show or just start moving the show. We just don't know. And we're going to have, I mean, it, I, I still think it's, I never get over how cool this is going to be, the fact that Nick uh, Offerman is going to, speak at the event, um, somebody who's become a big champion for the brand and, yeah, it's and not, the craft. No, really more of the craft than anything else. It's not easy to make woodworking funny, and a lot of people have tried and failed, but I think Nick Offerman uh, from Parks and Rec, he's a professional actor and comedian and plays funny songs and uh, has an act. Uh, he's going to do a variation of an act he's been doing around the United States um, at colleges and stuff. Uh, it's, it's kind of a little anecdotes about his days as a, as a carpenter. He was a pro carpenter and still is a pro woodworker. But I think he may be just a guy as a pro professional uh, funny man to um, uh, make woodworking funny for the first time ever. He very well could be. <laughs> Excellent. Well, he's um, a real friend of the magazine. He's, he's a huge fan. It was really cool to meet him and find out how much he loves the magazine. And he was on the cover um, a while back, like two or three issues ago with his router jig. Yep. In, and his beard. Incognito. And his beard, incognito. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, something which Adam Carolla picked up on, the fact that you can't, you can't tell that that guy has any notoriety at all because it's just some dude with a router and a beard. Yeah, but um, that's why he was on the cover, because he had a cool router jig, not 
because he's on a show. That's exactly. Indeed. Well, uh, that brings us to um, our first sort of segment uh, of the afternoon, and that is uh, pins versus tails. Pins. And that's, that's kind of like our crossfire segment. Yes. Um, so Asa and Mike, uh, you guys disagree from time to time, so why don't you take it away? We don't disagree often, so when we do, when we do disagree, it's kind of special. So pins versus tails is our version of an argument. Um, and we have a good, honest disagreement, mild though it is, about slow speed wet grinding versus yep. in the Tormac kind of family yep. versus um, higher speed bench grinders. The burning kind. <laughs> the kind you would call the burning kind. But the, I go with the slow speed version of those bench grinders, mm-hmm. which runs at about 1850 instead of 3600. Um, but either way, uh, who goes first here, All Mike? Right. Well, let me tell you my experience yeah. with a high-speed grinder, yeah. which is why I use wet grinders now. That gray wheel spinning a million miles an hour, scaring the crap out of me, sparks flying everywhere. I got the edge of my chisel turning blue and getting crooked all at the same time. Yeah. So I have a Tormac. It's a wet wheel grinder, nice and slow, no sparks. I got this cool clampy jig. I can put my, my uh, chisel or plane iron in there, clamp it down exactly at the right angle. Takes a while back and forth, but I get just a perfect hollow grind, no burning and no stress. Yeah, it's, you're, you're totally right that you get great results off a wet grinder. So two things. Number one, they're really they're expensive, and they rust out after a while because you've got water in the parts. We've gone through two or three of them here in the shop. Yes. Um, and secondly, you weren't using your bench grinder the right way. Well, I turned it on, and I put my blade <gasps> on there. <laughs> it's true. You did turn it on. That was a good step. Okay. That was a good start. Well, what so do? kudos for that. Okay. But um, the gray wheel was your first problem. You want to get a white wheel or one of these wheels that uh, is called friable. So those old carborundum wheels are, are a nightmare for, for woodworking tools. They blew and overheat the steel and take steel to temper right away. Nightmare. So you want to get one of these. They're often white, but sometimes they're pink or blue, right. depending on, you know, a pink one would be good for you. I like pink. Yeah. And, uh, and so you want one of those wheels. First of all, they'll run way cooler. The little particles chip away and they expose fresh abrasive okay. as you go along. Secondly, and I showed this a while back, I think there's going to be a video as an online extra um, coming up that Lisa there is. shot uh, about how to use your bench grinder effectively. And once you watch that, Mike, all your questions are going to be answered, man. Um, so the other, thing, the other really big thing is that you want to put, you want to crown the wheel. I never knew that until I read an article um, by Joel Moskowitz in the magazine about three or four years ago. And once you crown that wheel, now only a small amount of that wheel's in contact with okay. the blade at any one time. And it grinds way cooler, and it's, it's weird. Round gets you flat. It's like counterintuitive, hmm. you know? Right. But it's way easier to control the cutting action. So if you guys watch that video, all your questions will be answered, and you'll see just how wrong Mike is. Actually, Mike's never quite wrong. He's kind of right that a wet grinder does great. I would just say they're like 400 bucks just to very even get started. To do a I very can, specific thing. Yeah. I can get you into a bench grinder with a, with a, a, per, with a you know, change-out wheel, an aftermarket wheel on there for like 150 bucks, and it'll never wear out for your whole entire life well, long after you've rusted out three of your $400 wet grinders. Can I, can I add a question to this yeah. for you? Okay, so the and problem... And faster, too. The, All right. the problem I have with that whole method of using the 
the low, the slow speed bench grinder is that you're, okay, you're holding the chisel against the tool rest. Yeah. You're using like your index finger on the bottom of the chisel yeah. as the, you know, moving it against the tool rest right. so that you're, you're guiding it that way. But you can, I find it very difficult to make that initial bevel grind really perfectly square across that chisel. And I almost wonder if it's worth making some sort of a little jig that you hold against the tool rest and then against the chisel to make yeah. sure you get a perfect 90 degree. Yeah, you would think that's a problem, but I, can, it, I wish I had a grinder right in front of you right now. But if you watch the video, you'll find out why it's not. Yes, it's true. You use the back of your hand against the tool rest as sort of a depth stop, but that's not the key. The way you really track your progress is by, there's a couple ways. If you already have a bevel on there that you like, that is good, that is decent, then you keep flipping the tool over and just look and see how your progress is going. And you just hit more in some areas than others. And the good thing about the crown is you can twist the blade back and forth, side to side. It doesn't have to stay square hmm. to the wheel as you go back and forth, excuse me. And if you don't like the bevel that's on there, it's crooked, it's not square, whatever, then at the end of the video, I show you how to first blunt the tip at 90, get that, and then use that to track your progress as you go along. So you're really not relying on that finger at the back like as much as you think you are, the one that bumps up against the tool rest. It's more about flipping it over and checking your progress. Incidentally, I gave you the crappiest chisel that was my grandfather's. And how good does it look? It looks fantastic. It's never been that sharp. I, I can guarantee you it was never that sharp. You need a case closed sound effect. I get, yeah. True. But anyway, so Mike. I guess we're both kind of right. It's just, uh, you know, you should try the bench grinder, try the wheel. If you still right. struggle with it, watch my video. If you still struggle with it, then you absolutely will get results, uh, great results with a wet grinder and probably a little less skill and feel involved. Right. It's like those uh, new motorcycles with like the two front wheels instead of the one wheel. Yeah, that's what you're driving. You're yes. driving one of those motorcycles Name. with the two front wheels. Yes. So that's fine. If you want to roll around in that, I'm going to be in my Harley. <laughs> uh, you know, anyway. All right. Okay. Is this case closed then? Yeah. I think I'm going to get like a Perry Mason type sound effect. Okay. Um, it's, great. It work, it's great. And sound effects work really, really well when you first announce to people what you're going to do. <laughs> then... So um, our next question is actually a two-part question. And in order to handle this, we have to bring in uh, basically what, what amounts to our first guest. Um, I wish we... See, again, way, another sound effect that I want is the Merv Griffin music from when they would bring on guests. Um, Let me uh, put on your course. So... I'll tell you who this is in a moment when I read the question. Yeah, we have to bring on a real expert. All right. So this question came um, from Dan. That's the only name I have. And it, it says, John Binzen's profiles, both magazine and web, we're speaking of the back cover pieces, uh, are truly inspiring. He's a wonderful writer and always seems to find amazing talent. How does he find all these craftspeople? And thanks for including Binzen's articles in your primarily how-to magazine. So, John Benson, agree more, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, John's amazing, <laughs> and the back covers he finds are amazing. John is pretty much single-handedly, I'm just going to blow a little smoke at John, John's <laughs> direction first. He's like single-handedly, occasionally we throw him an author or a craftsman once in a while, but this guy is probably in the world, I don't think it's too much to say, one of the people who knows the most about the leading, most talented masters of the craft today, and John pretty much tracks these people down on, uh, 
on his own, and it's amazing, and uh, it's one of the things that's the lifeblood of the magazine. So what's your secret, John? Oh, thanks, Asa. Um, you know, it's, I was thinking about it. As I got this question, I'm thinking, well, where do they come from? And it's from all different sources. You know, one thing is I'm constantly on the lookout. So wherever I go, it's on my mind. And, um, it, but it's a whole bunch of layers of ways of looking. One is just knowing a lot of people. You know, I started out um, working in wood shops in Philadelphia about 30 years ago. And so I've, there's a whole group of people I know from Philadelphia. Then I've been up here for uh, the last 20 years. And I know a lot of people that I've met doing articles for fine woodworking. And, and home I, furniture. And home furniture. Yeah, which a I, lot of folks that don't know, we used to have a magazine. Uh, unfortunately, that's not around anymore, but it has a lot of fans out there, including all of us. And it's called Home Furniture. And John was really the driving, one of the driving forces, if not the driving force behind that magazine. And also worked at Fine Woodworking for a number of years, so throwing and, that in there. And I always felt that whenever I talked to somebody who was... Uh, good, I always asked, who else is good? And whenever I went on a trip, I said, tell me where to find somebody, you know, who else is around here? And I would always try and go uh, see people. But there's also, you know, I'm looking in books, magazines, um, I go to shows, I go to um, museums. I found, recently found someone who had work in a museum in England. And um, so all these things reinforce each other. I also go to schools. Whenever I'm in an area that has a wood school, a furniture making school, I stop in. I also call the that, um, people who run schools and occasionally will say, you know, who have you got? Who, who have you seen who's really inspiring? And, um, and then, of course, there's the internet, which over the last six or eight years has become an incredible tool for me to find people. You know, both, you know, in their personal websites, I'm constantly going to people's sites, checking back. If I liked it, I'll check back uh, regularly, go contact to their links, them. yeah, and contact them. I'll also go to somebody who I think is pretty good. I'll look at their links. That'll get me somewhere else. And, you know, before you know it, I'm in New Zealand by internet and finding uh, David Haig, you know, incredible chair maker that I'd never heard of except through this virtual uh, trip I took. So, and there's also retail sites on the web. So it's a lot of different things uh, that kind of mesh. That makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of aspects that I didn't really realize before. Um, can you tell like maybe one little story about like the, a, a visit that stands out in your mind, like visiting one of these folks? I'm always really inspired by these people, because in a lot of cases, I mean, occasionally there's probably a hidden trust fund in there somewhere, or there's a, a lawyer wife or somebody who's bankrolling this person. But in a lot of cases, they've made that incredibly courageous choice to base their life on art in a way, you know, or uh, or hand, something handcrafted. I find them really inspiring and. Um, yeah, so uh, is there someone who stands out or a little trip that stands well, out for you? Well, uh, there's so many of them I could go on. But w one person, as far as someone who has really made it happen um, fini financially for himself, uh, Hank Gilpin comes to mind, a guy who studied under Tate Frid, who was fine woodworking's really uh, amazing Patron saint and yeah, patron yeah our, saint. one of our first contributing editors. Biggest, yep. one of the biggest. Helped launch the magazine. On the magazine for sure. Yep. Um, 
Hank studied under Tay Fritt at RISD in the early 70s and then bought an old uh, church, renovated it, and the guy is continuing to uh, make furniture today, you know, 40 years later, that's exciting and uh, that makes him a living, you know. He's, but I have to say, he's, he's um, a rarity, you know. I think most people really do take, if they enter the field, they're saying, I'm not going to be making what a lawyer makes. Yeah. It's a tough go. And often their, their wife does work. It's not that they're not making any money at it, but... For the skill level they have, oh. it's shockingly low. Yeah. It's sort of like with the same amount of training and skills and mastery, you'd expect someone to make 100K, and they're lucky to eat out 30K if exactly. they can in a year. That's a good year. Right. So that's just part of the deal. But life's not... Again, it's, like it's not about materialism for those people... And it's, life's about something more than that, which is so honorable. Exactly. And that's what's so inspiring to make these visits. And another guy who comes to mind is David Lamb, yeah. who's up in New Hampshire. What a prince of a guy. Oh, an amazing guy who uh, apprenticed with this Spanish guy who wound up in the United States through odd circumstances. He was a, um, had apprenticed himself in Spain. Anyway, David... Um, learned from him and ended up taking over his shop, which is this beautiful uh, shop right down the road from where David grew up. And David has uh, put together a collection, in, in addition to making outrageous period... Probably the greatest reinterpreter of classical forms yeah, that I fabulous know. classical yeah. uh, furniture. He also has put together this collection of uh, huge old woodworking machines. Yeah, it's neat. Oh. Vintage stuff. Vintage stuff. A whole barn full of this stuff. He's got the belt drive going and everything. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, so, can yeah, I can like I that. Yeah. bring you guys around to one of the topics, one of your muses, John? I have a question yes. concerning. By the way, I just before you said yeah. I wanted to say everyone who's listening to this, look up the furniture of David Lamb. Um, that's just like it's spelled L A M B and Hank Gilpin G I L P I N. Um, you just, it just doesn't get any better than that. And especially Gilpin, I'd say, his stuff is amazingly designed, but strangely somehow still accessible. Like, totally. it's solid wood. It's pretty rectilinear. So um, you, it's the type of stuff that's not like, whoa, how would I even start it's to approachable. build that? It's approachable. Exactly, yeah. So, sorry. Um, well, this, uh, also, this is the second part of the question for John. Uh, and this comes from Bill Borer. And he asks, uh, hi, folks, on page 71 of issue 225, we see Jerry Osgood's compound curved chest with an accompanying illustration of his stave bending form. And this brings up two questions. One, the picture shows three plies for the drawer front. Is that correct? And two, what methods would he have used for clamping the plies together? Calls over the top of the ribs, vacuum bag, what the heck is it? So for those of you who just catch this as a podcast, um, some of this will be slightly lost on you, but if you watch the video stream, which we archive on the site, um, you can, hopefully Lisa can zoom in and see a little what we were talking about. It was, what issue was it? it was can, just you, the last can you actually bring it up? Five, just walk right? in front of the bench. Yeah, give it to These Mike, guys are Mike seated behind a bench, and we'd like to see it a little closer. Right and about so, there. Uh, yeah. Did you catch the drift of that question, John? Yeah. So what's the answer? Yeah, well, it's, so it is correct. It's a three-plied drawer front. And it's a, uh, Jerry Osgood developed this technique for compound 
bending of panels for uh, cabinets, and in this case for drawer fronts, in the late 60s, early 70s, and he calls it compound staved lamination. Yeah, what's mind-blowing about compound curves is that you can take a board and bend it in one direction, but his stuff bellies out like a pot belly, which, which is north to south uh, curve and east-west as well at the right. same time, which right. is insane. Yeah, and which you basically can't do with wood as thick as he's cutting it. So therefore, instead of um, trying to make this second curve in this, the individual board, he's co basically coopering. He's doing one curved uh, element and then putting another one beside it and another one beside it. Like a it. barrel. Picture a barrel. Like a barrel. Which and, curves in two directions. And, yeah, and one will be a tighter curve than the next. Um, and then once they're together, he'll fare the curve. He makes them out of... Uh, would, in this case, it's just three plies. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be more if the curve were um, tighter. Uh, but, th so that is correct. And I forget what else they were asking. Uh, they were asking about the, what oh, methods what? did he use for clamping the oh, plies? Yeah. He hold what it down? Right. Calls, what's he doing? We, we show in the, in the article just one form, the, um, the positive form. And the reason we did, Jerry actually uses a two-part form, um, and he clamps it up with bar clamps, or sometimes he'll put it in his screw. So, there's, press. so we didn't show another piece that actually goes on top. You know what? The reverse of that behind, actually behind holds Mike, it down. There's a, a form like what you're talking about cool. with the violin stuff. There's All a right. two-part form in that box. So it sounds like, and, yeah. And the, the reason we didn't show yeah. two parts is because. You can also do this in a vacuum bag. Gotcha. So we just wanted to show this the uh, positive form. So you got two options. You can oh, either you can either lay a vacuum bag on top of the form we showed in the magazine, which will suck it down in all directions, yep. or you can make the negative of it and come down on it and do it with clamps, which is pretty common for curved work. Here's a, if you're watching the video stream. Here's the idea of a positive and negative yeah, form. Yeah. So here's the positive. And with a vacuum bag, you could just lay your plies over this, yeah. suck it down, done deal. Without vacuum bag, you can use clamps and pull a positive form onto it. So good to have but, you on the podcast, oh, well, John. Thanks a lot. And it's I want all you guys to look out for John's going to start a blog. By the way, we have a great announcement here, which is that John was a freelancer for 12 years for us doing the back cover. Now he's back as a staff member, which we couldn't be happier and prouder about. And so you'll see a lot more of him and a lot more of his work and his influence on the magazine. And, and part of that is launching a new blog called Masters of the Craft Beyond the Back Cover. So his audio slideshows, which used to be called Pro Portfolio, are now going to be called Masters of the Craft. And he'll be doing, still doing those about the back cover subjects and also filling in with blogs about a lot of people who are amazing but didn't make the back cover because we only get six or seven a year. So we're, it's, it's going to be great. Ruminations great. from the road. Ruminations, <laughs> yes. Cogitations and ruminations. Oh. That was the runner-up title. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Asa. All right, good. Good to see you. See you. Okay, now get back to work. Okay, yeah. now, now I'm going to do the play-by-play -play of John and Mike switching microphones. Yeah, it's great. Uh, so Mike's reaching Ed, throw, this is This is awkward uh, time, so while... It doesn't make great pod or great video to watch Mike put on his his mic. Yes. So why don't you throw another question out while while he's fussing about? Uh, actually, I think he's. I'm good. How's he's it? good. He's good. Let's uh, let's just move right on into our 
You want to just move on into the next segment? Sure, yeah. All right. Do it. Okay, so this is uh, what we like to call uh, all-time favorite tool of all time this week. And uh, tell us what you guys got. I was supposed to bring in something called the saw jaw, which is a humble little plastic disc that goes around your saw blades and costs about $15 and um, not only protects the blade, but also has a little flange that sticks out. So when you loosen the arbor nut, you don't have to wedge that piece of wood in there to get the, the wedge the blade in place. It kind of the saw jaw takes care of it for you and it costs 15 bucks. And and uh, go check it out. But I didn't bring one in here to show it. Mike was a more diligent student and brought in his all-time favorite tool this week. Oh, this week. Wait, didn't he borrow mine? <laughs> oh, did he? He cheated. This is it? It's the hold down. It's a oh, no. That, yeah. Hold fast. Sorry, that's not mine. Which is a hold down. It's a hold down, but it's called a hold fast. I think so. Um, actually, I just bought this. I was at the... Um, tool store looking for aluminum T-track, which is quite romantic in and of itself. Didn't have that, but I did see this on the wall for like eight bucks, and it's like, oh, that's cool. So it was in my car. I was driving my son around. He saw it on the floor. He said, Dad, what's this? So I said, I'll show you. So, and he raced out to the shop because he couldn't <laughs> wait to get out there, right? My, my son doesn't spend a lot of time in my shop, but I said, come out in the shop. I'll show you what it is. He said, can you tell me? I said, no, I have to show you. So we got to my workbench, I got out a piece of stock, I put it in a hole, I gave him a hammer, which is a good start. I said, hit this thing right here. So he hit it, and I said, now grab that board, and it's just tight as a rock. Just like this one. Right. And he's like, okay, that's really cool. I said, okay, now take it out. So he starts grabbing, and he's like, not really impressed that he can't get it loose. So I say, take your hammer and just hit it right on the back. So he hits it, it pops up, and just... The light bulb goes on in his head. He just looks at this and says, who thought of this? Yeah. And I said, this thing's been around for a couple hundred years. People have been using this all the time. And it was just, it was cool to actually, you know, see that spark, see that, that brain sort of get blown a little bit. So yeah. this was, I haven't really put this to use yet, but in a you sense. You have I other have. ones, I'm sure. Um, actually, I don't. It's one of those things I've always wanted. Um, yeah. And, um. I'm a believer now. Well, oh my gosh. I use one all the time. I use it to hold pieces down for power tool work, for hand tool work, for biscuiting, for all kinds of stuff, for chopping mortises. I have one on my bench. I, uh, I have round dog holes, which is nice. It's a good reason to have round dog holes. You can put your hold fast anywhere. But I would suggest um, putting a little leather pad. Get some five-minute epoxy, put a little leather pad on the tip, cool. and then if it doesn't hit the board just right, uh, it won't mar the wood. I love it's a, it. Yeah, a nice little leather pad on there is great. But yeah, it's, that's such a great moment with your son. It's like just a little realization on his part that A, woodworking's kind of cool. And maybe I, I would hope that we're, he would realize, and one of the things that gets me jazzed is that we're walking. I never say that gets me jazzed. Like, why am I suddenly saying dynamite and gets me jazzed? These aren't things that I never, I don't know. <coughs> old, cameras on. old. <laughs> old, old man. Um, uh, no, uh, uh, that we're walking in the footsteps of, um, that this, you're not entering this craft sort of in a vacuum and it just got invented yesterday. When you enter this craft, there's so many smart people who have gone before you who have, you know, tackled these problems and you get to benefit from walking in their footsteps. Right. And the humble hold fast is like 
that kind of the epitome of what woodworking is all about. You right? can use that in the, in the front apron of a bench as well, right? We were talking about this the other day. That's true. So if you have your front vise um, and you have a long board and you want to plane the edge of that board or chamfer the edges of that board, you can stick a dowel into a hole in the front of your bench, but even better, you can put a hold fast in there and it'll slap the board right up against the front apron of your bench. But it only works if your vise, your, the rear jaw of your vise is the front apron of your bench. Right. If, you, if you strap a vise on and the, and the rear jaw is sticking out from the bench, right. you can't smack a hold fast against the other end of the board. It won't work. Right. Moving on. So that is a killer all-time favorite tool, yeah. man. All right. All right. Next well, question. Uh, next question uh, comes from Windwood Trader. Um, and this guy wants to, he says he's got a drawer full of dull drill bits. Um, it's my understanding that sharpening depends upon whether or not the bit will be used for wood or for metal, and that when a bit is purchased, it is set at an average sharpening angle. Not owning a drill doctor and not seeing a value in doing so, I'd appreciate an expert opinion on sharpening on a wheel or other tool, like a dedicated sharpener, and what angles to use when sharpening. Well, I have one answer to this of what I've done, and then you have some answers about what you've done. Um, I come from a, from a machinist background. I went to tech school and uh, learned machine shop and worked out in a real machine shop for a while. Mm -hmm. So I got really comfortable um, on, my, on my bench grinder, on my a speedy bench grinder, which I was crowing about. I got um, really comfortable doing one kind of bit, which is just a normal twist drill. Um, and so when that dulls, I'm able to go up there uh, to my bench grinder and give it this little twist that sharpens um, the two parts of the tip. I forget what they're called, but uh, it's tricky. Um, it's tricky to do that. You can give it a try, but you can only really do it on twist drills. And these aren't the most um, helpful for woodworking. They're really designed for metalworking. These are the kind with the V tip. But if you're in the land of Bradpoint bits or Forstner bits, they have way more complicated uh, a sharpening profile on the tip of them, and you're not going to be able to put those on your bench grinder successfully. Those have to be done professionally if they're really damaged. But Mike, you've got a way to deal with those bits without sending them out for sharpening or buying a whole new set. Right, especially the older style uh, Bradpoint bits where there's actually flat flanges, and you'll find that you can actually get a slipstone or even a fine triangular file if there's a heavy burr on there. Just ride that same, ride that, that facet, yes. keep it dead on there, and, and then just remove the burr on the little uh, twirly part. Yes. What do you, flute? The flute, yeah. And um, I find, and you can do a good job, a lot of the newer um, uh, Bradpoint bits, the Vortex bit and such, they have really funky geometric grindings. And I, I yeah, they have extra little burr do. points out at the outside. But... Um, What's really critical here, there's a couple really critical things. Don't touch the outside diameter. Never touch the outside diameter of a drill bit or a router bit because you're changing how big a hole it'll cut, right. um, and you're actually going to send it into a hole with like a wedging action. Mm -hmm. The other thing is it needs a relief angle. So, Mike, if you just draw the tip of a drill there, like a normal twist drill if you can. This sure. is a drawing challenge for Mike. But if you guys, if, you, if you're not watching the video and you just pick up a drill bit that you have, you have to have a relief angle. That means that, that from 90 degrees, the grinding angle's got to go back a little bit to like 85 or 80 or 75 so that, that the edge doesn't actually rub on the wood but actually cuts 
the wood. So I don't know if you can pull that off, Mike, but just draw a relief yeah. angle. So it's kind of, it's not exactly that. It's no, from the side. So if this is your hole you're drilling, the, the angle on the top of the bit, it cannot be perfectly parallel to that. It's, it actually has to roll back. It's this right here. It's the it's the sort of a, this this might be we may be going down a rabbit yeah, hole here, but I think we are. It's how it's if you look at the side of a drill bit, um, it's uh, it's how the edge sort of goes away from the wood. That's your relief angle. It lets it actually cut instead of rub. So you really got to make sure you have that relief angle on there when you touch anything. And then I wanted to show one other thing, which is instead of a file or a slipstone or whatever. I really love these little diamond plates. You can get these small little diamond plates. Um, and I use them to tune up. Uh, I'll use them on my drill bits now. But I use them to tune up router bits. Um, every time I use a router bit, it, it, it does a couple things. It gets the gunk off of there. And in, all you do is you sharpen the flat face. You just hone the face of the router bit, never the outside edge. You're edges. taking a burr off. And the gunk? Or is There's there a burr? No burr? There's no burr, really. You're just, you're just honing the, the sort of... Uh, the front face, and it ends up honing the cutting edges slightly, oh, cool. and it takes any gunk off of there, and your router bits will cut so much better if you do this every once in a while, but only on the face of the uh, carbide, and diamond works really well on carbide. Although and you're using a green... to do anything like that with my router bits, I was afraid I'd take them out around, they're going to create vibration. No, so the key there is don't touch those outside edges, just do the... And you're using yeah. a green. I mean, those are all indexed Black. by color, those diamonds. Uh, I don't think it really matters which one. I would use the roughest one just to get quicker results okay. because you're, it, it's going to be plenty good. But anyway, moving cool. on. Oh, well, you know what? Okay. Drill bit is absolutely critical to sharpen. Yeah. And everyone has to do it is the drill bit inside of a hollow chisel mortar surf oh. where you got the square chisel and the bit inside. They never come sharp. There's always burrs. People have problems with burning and chip clogging. Invariably, it's because that drill bit isn't sharp. So just take a look, ride the facets. Like I said, don't touch the outside edges. Get rid of the burrs. And don't change the angles. Right. But take off any burr and try to hone the edge a little yeah, bit. It's going to improve the performance of your mortiser dramatically. Kill. All right. Uh, moving on, we've got another question from Paul Peterson. And uh, he says he's expanding his shop from a shed to a real workshop. And his question is, is it better to have a concrete floor or a wooden floor? That's a great question. There's a lot of it depends, it depends, it depends. Um, if you are going to resell the house and um, it's a garage, you know, you have to think about someone else might not be a woodworker, so they may want to roll their cars in there. More normal human beings normally want to put their cars in the garage if they have a garage. Right. Um, so if you do put down a wooden floor, you might want to make it, you know, removable later on. Um, absolutely, though, the short answer is that a wooden floor is so much more friendly to work on. It's warmer, it's easier on your knees and back and hips and everything, especially as you get older. Um, and in new construction, you great. can uh, hide your dust collection underneath the floor. Oh, yeah, that's true. If you have sort of like a, a substantial area underneath those floor rafters. If, but we've done an article uh, in the past on laying sort of sleepers, like pressure-treated sleepers. That was the one on Mike's shop, right? On their side. Uh, actually, in my actually, shop. In your shop? In your at shop? my shop, we did that. You take uh, pressure-treated two-by-fours and lay them on their side, and then um, you put that rigid foam in insulation in between them, and then lay a moisture barrier over the top, like some poly... Uh, Polyethylene? Six mil poly, yeah. Yeah, six mil poly over the yeah. top, and then yeah. put plywood on top of that. And you use those powder-activated nails to go down through the sleepers into your 
concrete, which are really fun. Which to are use. yeah, I was just gonna say. You I mean, get come those on. little Remington cartridges oh. in there, and like I'm not a hunter gun guy, but I, I only because of I'm too involved. I would be, but I'm involved in too many other things. I'd love to shoot a bunch of guns, but. Exactly. And that's what it sounds like in your shop, <laughs> except for the loading and reloading part. Um, so you get to buy a lot of little Remington cartridges, which is kind of fun. You feel extra manly if you're not a hunting guy. You got any bounce on your floor on the, the raised portion? No. The sleepers, you know, put them 16 inches on center. Um, use thick plywood. Use like a three-quarter ply. Yeah. Um, I don't get any bounce. But then... I only put it, oh, I only put it in my bench area where I spend most of my time walking around. I didn't put it everywhere, just with the idea toward resale. Okay, wrapping it up. Um, well, we, I know you wanted to bring in a, a letter to the editor yeah. of the print magazine. These yeah. are letters we get um, driven from print, not from web. Yeah, we're going to give people a sneak preview um, of a letter to the editor, that editor that's not out on the newsstand yet. And this one is a question about cyclone dust collectors, people said, people read my article on um, souping, you know, really improving your dust collection in the last tools and shops issue. We made a big deal about how cyclone dust collectors are so amazing, and which is true, and yep. there's nothing better. It's the most efficient, powerful, doesn't get clogged up um, system if you can afford one. And then so the guy, Kevin Hine of Bellevue, Washington, asked, um, why don't you guys do a big head-to-head -head review of all the cyclones? We haven't done it. And we don't have any immediate plans to do it, and here's why. What we found is that, the that there's not that much difference between the different cyclones. I'm sure the manufacturers will argue with me a little bit, but that the cyclone principle is pretty much the cyclone principle, and it's big sheet metal drum, and et cetera, and it's got an impeller, and it's got all that normal stuff. What really separates the different cyclones is the filtration, the cartridge filter. How good is it? And there's a few companies out there that... Um, that what you're looking for is third-party certified, as close to HEPA-level filtration as you can find. Um, that's what you want in a cyclone. So go looking for that. There's a few companies out there that we found that have it. I believe you need to double-check all this, but I believe that Oneida is one, Penn State is one, and I think Grizzly is really close as well. So, But you need to find... Uh, out that if their stuff is third-party certified to be at HEPA level. If you really want to get techie, it's sort of MERV 15, and the, the, that's, the, that's one of the standards that's used. But it's all mostly about filtration. And then after that, it's really about um, system size. So how long are your duct runs? Talk to the manufacturer about how many horsepower you need to pull dust through the length of duct runs that you have in your shop. But that doesn't vary between manufacturer. You just need a certain amount of horsepower and a certain amount of cubic feet per minute. Boring. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit boring. <laughs> Sorry. So moving on, Mike did a little <laughs> diagram of why a cyclone is so great. Basically, it's separator system. So it's separating out all the big stuff. The, Mike, if you draw the impeller to the top left, the top left of the cyclone there, um, as it goes out, it's near the exhaust uh, up there. Yeah, that's... Uh, so what it does is before, yeah, right there, before the dust, the big debris and all that junk gets to the impeller and, and wears down your impeller, I know we're already in boring land, and before it even gets to the filter, most of it is spinning around and settling out in the drum at the bottom of the cyclone. So that's what's great about a cyclone. It separates out 
8% of the dust and debris before it can ever reach your filter and clog it up. Okay. All right. Um, well, you know what? Let's, uh, let's head on to our final segment, and uh, that is uh, titled, What Are You Working On This Week? What are we working on this week? Well, what I was working on, what was that, a, a saw? That was a saw. Yeah. That was pretty good. I think I wanted, maybe I needed like a drill yeah, that or a table great. saw. You need like three or four. You've got to raise your, up your game a little bit. <laughs> All right, so. I'm going to have to pay for the next Oh, yeah, time. the blurry picture of the chair. I don't know. <laughs> um, so it's not going to be blurry on, on, our, on our camera, but what I, what I just got done with is a set of two Morris chairs with bow arms. That means bent laminations, which was the first time actually I ever did bent laminations, which was really fun. That's a great oh, you know, woodworking. Oh, good for you! <laughs> woodworking is a journey, and uh, it is good for me that I did this. Um, woodworking is a journey, and that's what's cool. You keep trying out things that you haven't done before. I read Michael Fortune's article, and it worked like a charm. How to how thick to make your plies, how to make the bending form, how to clamp the stuff down. And what's great about that is you, instead of sawing through a big thick piece of lumber and messing up your figure on this beautiful white oak. You actually take your best piece, make that your top your fly, top fly. Yeah. and that wraps around, and you're not sawing through it at a, on a curve, so you get the perfect ray fleck on top. It's less wasteful, too. Yeah, exactly, and it was dead easy to do, really easy to do. Just read that article by Michael. I also made some design changes here. Um, I, I, from the one, this is the bow arm that we had in the magazine a while back, a couple of years ago. I made some design changes. I did like a, what is that, Mike? Kind of like a Macintosh thing, sure. the squares on the side. I had a little bit of Macintosh flare on the side. I didn't like the plain old slats. And that's another cool thing, is to take the fine woodworking projects and really make them your own. You know, don't, people get caught up in, you know, give me a full cut list and I'm going to make it sort of slavishly to the centimeter exactly like you did it. None of that matters. None of that matters. Make it suit you and make it fit the lumber that you have and um, make it your own. That we, you know, that's what you should be doing with these projects. And it was my first time getting some, buying some real leather, which you have to buy in hides. I don't know if any of you guys out there have ever bought leather for a piece of furniture, but you have to buy it by the hide, so you really get semi-intimate with the cow. And um, we'll just leave that one alone. And, yeah. Uh, and then you go, I went to an upholsterer and I talked exactly about what I wanted and and it got really awesome cushions for my Morris chairs. These are great. I made a pair of them, and they're sitting in the front room. And I sit there, and I have things out of snifters. That's and, right. And, and, and humidors and things like that. Velvety clothing. and Yeah, I wear a smoking jacket. Of course. Yeah, but it's great. Like it's that. awesome. I had a little moment the other day where I sat down to read a magazine, and my daughter came over and sat down to read a book, and there was no TV on, and we were just both there sitting in the chair that I just made. Um, that was my little kid moment. You're gonna make some ottomans? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I could. I could. I could do. I haven't decided on that yet. If I do that, I'm going to sleep. Yes. Do you know what I mean? If I put my feet up, I'm gonna pass out. That's kind of the point. Yeah. So maybe not. What are you working on, Mike? Well, uh, speaking of mixing media, this is something that I made recently. Actually, I taught this as a class at Connecticut Valley School of Woodworking. And it was really cool because the woodworking is really pretty simple on it. 
but it does introduce what is it? a new medium and a new challenge. What's for, that? For, the folks for those who are people watching, listening you might want to tell them what it podcast. actually is. It's a ceramic elephant, and you pull the trunk. <laughs> <laughs> it's a white oak lamp base with a beautiful cut wow. glass. <laughs> with a with a beautiful cut glass uh, top, and you just taught a class on this, right? Uh, yes. Nearby, Mike's been getting out and about and teaching. He's such a good woodworker that we didn't want to keep him all to ourselves. So he's out teaching in places, and you teach how to do the base and the cut glass top, right? Right, and it's cool because you're teaching woodworkers. The woodworking is actually really simple and easy, but the the stained glass techniques are new to most folks. So there's a lot of stress involved in learning how to cut glass and it's really, compared to woodworking, it's really dead simple. So it's really neat to, um, to uh, show people new skills and, and give them sort of uh, some confidence working in a media that they normally don't. I love mixing the media because if you're a woodworker, if you're not careful, your house gets super woody. Um, it's like, like I brought home a, a, a turned vessel and my wife sort of just rolled her eyes like we don't need another piece of wood in this house. You end up doing the, like the Dick Van Dyke thing at the beginning of the Dick Van Dyke show where he trips over the ottoman because there's so much crap in the room. Wooden crap. Wooden yes. crap, yes. And so you gotta, so mixing in media, if you can get some metal or glass or leather into your furniture, it really highlights the wood instead of everything just becoming a sea of wood in your house. Um, so that that style of the, it's funny, this is right out of the arts and crafts bag. We happen to both be doing arts and crafts stuff. Right. Is that kind of prairie style um, on the top there? What, what's the cut glass style? I would say so. Yeah, it is more rectilinear, sort of a Frank Lloyd Wright style right. stained glass. So right. Prairie I mean, style. even within the arts and crafts style, it's important to understand that it's not a monolithic thing. You have Stickley, and then you have what the Green Brothers did out in Pasadena, and you have the, what was happening in the prairie. There's English arts and crafts. Yes. There's so many. There's Scottish. Yeah, um, so there's so many. You know, Charles Rennie Mac, Macintosh. Mm -hmm. There's so much going on within that field. It's really rich. You could stay your whole life just in, yes, wrap it up. So uh, let's wrap it up. Uh, that's what we're working on right now. So at that's our podcast for this week. I guess that's it. No more questions, Ed, for this time? No, that's it. That's all we got. Um, how, how, what's our running time, Lisa? 54 minutes. 54 minutes. All Perfect. Right. Perfect. Uh, so we stayed under an hour. If we go above an hour, what happens? We run out of videotape, and these people in black suits come out of the closet and beat us. Men in black. Yes. All right. <laughs> so that's for this week. I hope you really enjoyed it, um, I, and I hope that uh, folks will find this on iTunes or watch the live stream or watch the archive. What else do they need to know, Ed? Uh, well, don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com, and we'll reconvene in two weeks on March 30th. Uh, in the meantime, you can catch Shop Talk Live as a podcast via iTunes or watch the archive video of this live stream next week at finewoodworking.com slash blogs. Thanks for watching and listening, and now get out in the shop and do some work. <laughs>